Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFRL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman, and uh, once again, this edition should really be called The Week Ahead in Ukraine. My guest is Chris Miller, a BuzzFeed News correspondent who covered Ukraine for RFERL for several years, not too long ago. He did great work then, and he's now back in Kiev. Uh, He's been there for, or in Ukraine, uh, for the past month. Thanks very much for joining me, Chris. Thanks for having me, Steve. Pleasure to be back. All right. It's good to talk to you again. Um, Now, my first question is a broad one. Uh, Chris, on this current stint, uh, you've been in Ukraine for a month now. And you spent 11 years there in the past, uh, during the worst parts uh, of the war between government forces and Russia-backed militants in the Donbass in 2014-2015, and also in the quieter years after that, Um, somewhat quieter, that is. Now, with Russia now massing uh, what many say are more than 100,000 troops uh, near Ukraine's borders and in Crimea, and also pressuring NATO to rule out membership for Ukraine forever. What's what's the biggest change you've noticed uh, in the country, wh- wh- whether it's the mood, attitudes about NATO or Russia, really whatever your impressions are, I'd find your perspective interesting. Sure. You know, I, I, I guess maybe it's easiest just to start from like when I arrived in Ukraine and what the mood was like then. Mm-hmm. It was March 2010, and Viktor Yanukovych who was ousted by you know, pro-democracy, pro-European uh, revolutionaries back during the Maidan uprising in 2014, had just been sworn in as, as president. And, you know, that gave way to this sense of, you know, Ukraine continuing this stronger relationship with uh, Russia. Um, but there was talk then of Ukraine actually becoming a little bit more European. You know, Yanukovych, a lot of people like to paint Yanukovych as this pro-Russian stooge from the outset. And I don't think that's necessarily right. You know, he was definitely pro-Yanukovych and wanted to see his his party grow and and cement power and and control and rob the country. Um, And and at that time, Ukrainians were not, let's say, as pro-European as they are today. And that's definitely one of the major changes from you know, a decade ago, Ukrainians saw themselves as Ukrainians, first and foremost. And there were even really strong regional identities, uh, like people of the Donbass, you know, almost first and foremost, many of them, you know, describe themselves as people of the Donbass, rather than, you know, uh, Russian or or even Ukrainian. You know, they saw they had a really strong regional identity. Mm-hmm. But there was no uh, hunger for... Um, uh, Ukraine to be a part of the European Union. There was no strong desire to join NATO at that point. All of that came, you know, much later on. Uh, if we fast forward to 2014, when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula, fomented war in the Donbas, that's when attitudes here among Ukrainians, including those in the east of the country which enjoyed close ties with Russia, really started to change. And if you look at polling. If you, you know, anecdotally, if you speak to people, whether it's in eastern Ukraine or southern Ukraine or western Ukraine or here in Kiev in the capital, people most of the time will tell you they view Ukraine's future in the West as a part of Europe. Um, You know, they now enjoy visa-free travel to the European Union, allowing them 90 days to live, experience, travel, 
in an area of the world that was really difficult for much of them to access before. And so they've gotten a taste of what it can be like if, if Ukraine does uh, take the, uh, the steps necessary to, uh, to become uh, eventually in, in sometime down the, down the road a part of the European Union or in, you know, in between now and, and that time to grow closer ties and, and enjoy more benefits of the European Union. And, and, and Ukrainians largely have become uh, more um, anti-Russian, if you will. You know, they view Russia less as this friendly neighbor and this brotherly nation, as Vladimir Putin likes to refer to Ukraine as, mm-hmm. and certainly as an adversary and uh, an aggressor. Ukrainians have lived with eight years almost now of, of uh, Russia's war that has largely remained in the east of the country, at least in conventional military terms, but right. all Ukrainians have, have been touched by the war, right? And you've got, you've got you know, uh, boys from Western Ukraine who have gone over and fought in the West and, and given their lives to defend the country. You've got cyber warfare that has happened in Kiev and in Western Ukraine, where the, you know, the Ukrainian government says Russia has switched off the lights and power and um, uh, you know, also attacked Ukraine in the uh, information sphere with you know various disinformation attacks, and so you know Ukrainians Ukrainians see themselves as not this part of uh, Russia's sphere of influence anymore, and very much as their own their own nation with you know this desire to grow and develop and and it sees itself as very much a part of europe and i think if you you know i I know just in speaking with my many ukrainian friends here if you ask them you know uh uh what are you you know they will say ukrainian they'll also say european and and they mean it in this sort of western democratic european sense i think that's you know certainly the biggest change that I've that I've felt in being here over that time. Um, one other thing I would I would say is important to mention is uh, a little bit more specific to the Russian military threat right now. Mm-hmm. And that is Ukraine's military, which was caught flat footed in 2014 and, and really failed to react to uh, Russia's forced annexation of Crimea and, and, and um, uh, this covert uh, war using separatist proxies in the east is that you know now Russia or uh, Ukraine's military rather is is much stronger. They've undergone training from NATO countries, including the United States. They've received um, lethal aid from the United States, and more recently the UK and several other uh, European and EU countries. Uh, it's got one of the largest standing armies in Europe at more than 220,000 uh, active duty soldiers. President Volodymyr Zelensky just signed uh, an order to expand that by another 100,000 soldiers. On top of all of that, you've got more than 400,000 veterans. And now the formation of these territorial defense brigades that are civilian volunteers taking up arms and training with these veterans uh, in cities across Ukraine to defend uh, itself and, and themselves against Russia should it um, uh, attack again. And so you've really got this militarized Ukrainian society that did not exist before 2014. And what is a really, really strong military force? Now, is it going to stop any Russian invasion? You know, if, if, if Putin decides to go all in, probably not. But 
the Ukrainian people are certainly more willing today than they were you know, years ago to put up a real strong, costly fight. Uh, it's very interesting, Chris. Uh, I'll just, I mean, that would actually be a great segue to, to my next question, but I'm just going to go back um, a bit to a couple of things you said, you know, one of which was that Ukrainians are on the whole more anti-Russian now. And it strikes me, you know, Putin essentially has accused, I think, accused the West of trying to turn Ukraine into the anti-Russia. But, you know, uh, critics of Putin and I think uh, a lot of people in Ukraine would say that it is, you know, it's Putin and Russia that that have had of that have done that job, um, you know, with the the aggression that you mentioned, um, you know, that Ukrainians have lived under uh, for, for almost eight years and experienced in all in all parts of the country and, and in different ways. Another thing I would point out or uh, build on that you, that you mentioned is the kind of uh, the idea that, uh, you know, now as, as compared to a decade ago or, or so, um, there's uh, more of a kind of European identity. Uh, people see themselves as um, part of Europe, um, and it's not like they're looking at themselves as, as part of Russia or the Russian world. And now, you know, this palpably, I mean, if you read what Putin has written and, and listen to what he's said, you know, it does seem like he's really trying to to stop that, to, to reverse, stop and reverse that process. Um, and just the big question, you know, and it's quite a breathtaking thing to to be think to be doing. Uh, and I guess the big question is, you know, how far, uh, or at least one of the big questions, how far uh, Putin and you know his government are willing to go to to try to do that, to to really kind of try to bring um, Ukraine back into the sphere of influence and back under more. Uh, you know, influence and control of Russia. So, I mean, my, my next question is uh, linked to that, and it's more specific. I don't want to ask you to make predictions, but I want to discuss uh, the current situation as regards the Russian buildup, uh, the military buildup. U.S. Um, U.S. officials have been saying for some time, based on intelligence, that Russia has been planning for a possible new invasion, while also saying that it appears Putin has not yet made a decision. Uh, there are a lot of opinions about this and about how the U.S. is uh, is dealing with it publicly. Um, but I think almost everyone agrees that there's been no sign that the Russian military buildup has slowed, let alone uh, reversed. Uh, and then this weekend, there was a particularly eye-catching article in the Washington Post um, just the opening paragraph, uh, I'll read word for word, said, Russia is close to completing preparations for what appears to be a large-scale invasion of Ukraine that could leave up to 50,000 civilians killed or wounded, decapitate the government in Kiev within two days, and launch a humanitarian crisis with up to 5 million refugees fleeing the resulting chaos, according to updated U.S. military and intelligence assessments briefed to lawmakers and European partners over the past several days. Now, um, I, I guess the Ukrainian officials uh, said over the weekend, kind of pushed back on this saying, uh, well, the chances of, of further diplomacy or of a diplomatic solution are higher than a military one. But um, you know, I was certainly struck by, by this uh, wording uh, of this article. Chris, what, what do you make of this? Yeah. To, first, to your to your last point, I would say 
you know, it has been very much so, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's actions that have pushed Ukraine and Ukrainians further west and, and really um, uh, forced a, a lot of the change that has happened in this country over the years. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of chuckle because a lot of people here uh, in Ukraine do the same in, in you know, uh, considering what Vladimir Putin has done to try to keep Ukraine in its sphere of influence. Uh, you know, and and how it has actually ended up backfiring spectacularly, and and changed the attitudes of the Ukrainians um, to you know the great extent that it has. Now, what is he willing to do, or how far is he willing to go to to try to reverse that? Um, is of course the big question that I think is uh, unfortunately impossible to answer right now. Uh, you know, we, we we certainly can look at what he's doing and make some uh, assessments based off of that. Um, you know, like you said, the, the massing of, of troops around Ukraine's border hasn't slowed. Uh, you know, according to all of the reports in the Post and the Times and my own reporting here uh, among uh, Ukrainian officials and, and speaking with uh, uh, U.S. officials also, you know, is that these, these troops continue to pour in, that they're starting now to see the logistical trail that is needed to sustain an attack for for days, if not if not weeks, mm-hmm. if that's what Russia should plan to do. Um, you know, we saw the uh, the really scary headlines, and and I think the lead from the post that you saw or that you that you read just a moment ago about you know, what a full scale Russian offensive would would potentially look like. And I think you know that everybody I've spoken with, and in my own assessment, I would say that's probably the least likely thing to happen uh you know military experts i've spoken with and 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 used in my reporting have said you know russia would need a significant amount more uh troops to to carry out a a full-scale offensive and occupy the country right Mm -hmm. invading attacking is one thing occupying is another You, you still needs uh you know uh greater numbers in order to do that but what i'm hearing is is more likely uh, would be some sort of limited incursion or attack that could target strategic regions of Ukraine or specific cities. Kharkiv is one that's been named, not only by analysts, but also President Zelensky in an interview with the Washington Post a couple weeks back mentioned Kharkiv as a place that Russia might target because right. of its historically close ties to Russia, um, a larger Russian-speaking population than many other parts of the country. Kiev is, of course, being discussed as a target because it's, it's the capital and it's certainly where the central government sits and where Zelensky's uh, presidential office is headquartered. Um, you know, it's, it's also seen as the birthplace of Kievan, you know, historic Kievan Rus and, and um, the cradle of, of, uh, of, of Russia and Ukraine. That, you know, that makes it of significant, you know, historical significance, cultural significance for Moscow and, and, and Vladimir Putin. And so, you know, that's, uh, that's also one thing that um, I think is increasingly being discussed. Uh, Kiev being a potential a potential target uh, uh, for for any Russian aggression. Um, you know, there are also a combination of other things that that are are, are possible and you know more likely than an all out invasion. And they would include a, some kind of combination of cyber attacks, disinformation. Um, you know, these types of things that would be meant to cause internal destabilization in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what really concerns the Ukrainian officials I've spoken with. 
um, you know, those, uh, and, and I've spoken with people in Zelensky's office as well as the National Security and Defense Council Secretary Alexei Danilov just last week, and he said, you know, our biggest concern is internal destabilization because that could provide the pretext for Russia to launch an attack. Mm-hmm. You know, and those those types of things could be anything from a protest that gets out of hand, uh, attacks on Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine, uh, or the Ukrainian military. Uh, or somebody who who would be seen as being associated with the Ukrainian military launching some kind of artillery uh, bombardment against uh, the occupied territories in Donetsk and Lugansk and, and perhaps you know knocking out some kind of civilian infrastructure. So those are the kind of things that they're really worried about. Um, one thing I wanted to mention was that you know there are, there has been this difference in in messaging between Ukraine and and uh, the United States mm-hmm. about the, the threat posed by Russia and. The Ukrainians have told me that it's not that they that they don't think Russia is capable or considering this. It's just that they see this buildup of forces and assess it slightly differently. You know, the U.S. has said that an attack and an invasion could happen any day now, and they, you know they were even using the word imminent, right. which confused the Ukrainian the Ukrainians to a pretty great extent. Uh, but you know, they what they see is. Uh, this being Russia applying pressure, and and they're really convinced that Putin has not made the decision to uh, to attack, let alone uh, launch a full scale invasion yet. They are still you know holding out hopes for diplomacy. I know that they're trying several things behind closed doors. They are putting a lot of weight in um, the diplomacy that uh, French President Emmanuel Macron might um, be able to uh, conduct, as well as the Germans, so not only the United States here, but uh, its, its European allies. And, you know, they, they are well aware of the Russian threat. Um, they're not downplaying it, they say. You know, they're trying to not cause panic and chaos. And part of, part of their, their position here and, and uh, their, their assessment and uh, let's say, you know, what some have called a lack of emotion on their part is mm-hmm. largely due to the fact that they've been under Russian threat and uh, had, you know, much of their, their country occupied for eight years. And the war for them and the invasion for them has, has not ceased. It's, it's this ongoing thing. And, and I think that's, you know, something that uh, has, has uh, not always been um, underscored in a lot of the, uh, the discussions around what's happening right now. Well, those are great. Those are great points. Um, you know, uh, uh, and a great explanation of, of the of the Ukrainian government's position, Zelensky's uh, position. Um, you know, you mentioned kind of the, the the they've been under this for eight years almost, um, and it's and you're saying I think they you know they see the military buildup uh, you know as pressure. It is clearly pressure. And then you mentioned the kind of uh, possibility that that could be used or um, the, the, the fear among uh, in the Ukrainian government, some of the biggest fears are of internal destabilization caused by Russia. Um, you know, that that kind of emphasizes because, you know, I'm sitting here and I think a lot of people think of, well, OK, Russia will invade or it won't invade. And that's, you know, one of those two things will happen, you know, in the various gradients of what kind of an invasion it might be if it does happen. But then, as you mentioned, as you say, there's also the idea that this is actually pressure that is happening now with the buildup. Um, and that could lead to, you know, any number of, of things and could, you know, work in, in Russia's uh, favor. So it's kind of, 
part of the whole the whole pressure that that will you know even if diplomacy kind of prevails at least for the time being that pressure you know may may not go away so uh it's just something to something to think about um well chris uh you know thanks very much uh, really great assessments uh uh, great, uh, great insights on what's what's happening and, and what the mood and the th- the thinking is there in Kiev. Uh, we're running out of time, and we will wrap it up here. Chris, thanks very much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. All right, um, I'll be back next Monday for another Week Ahead podcast, and please check out my Week in Russia newsletter on Friday. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.